host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? Ah, not too much. It's, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm ready for... I'm I'm ready for hockey games that like really really matter. I'm not saying that these games don't matter, but like it's mm-hmm. kind of we're at that spot where like these final ten games feel like the longest stretch of the season because you're just like playoffs are right around the corner and like I don't know. It's I I think part of it is I've been being in the Detroit area and being around a team where the balloon is basically popped. Things feel like they're just it feels like it's slogging to the finish after what had been potentially potential. Well, it's remarkable. It's, it's remarkable what sort of ex- expectations or perspective can do in terms of that framing, right? Because two teams can wind up in the same spot, but if they were way out of it at the trade deadline and then they finish hot, they can kind of talk themselves into, all right, well, you know, we can build off of this heading into next season. We this is how we yeah. want to want to start playing. Maybe especially some of our young guys are contributing, or or we made certain personnel changes. Whereas a team can be kind of on the fringe of that wild card race become a seller, completely bottom out. And these last couple of weeks just feel like the most like hopeless stretch oh, yeah. of games possible. And in reality, you're talking about the Red Wings there, for example, I would still view this season as, I know they kind of like invested a lot of resources this off season and veterans to kind of try and fast track this process. But considering the results they had the past handful of seasons, this year still feels like a massive success for them in, in kind of turning around the organization yet these it, last handful yeah. of games just feel so bleak. They do. And it, it's something where it's like, you look at it and you should be, if you had said before the season, like, so obviously like there's a lot of excitement about what Simon Edmondson can possibly be in Detroit and everything like that. And and they're going to get him nine games and NHL games in here before the end of the regular season, before the season ends and everything like that. And that should be kind of more exciting. Like it should be like, Oh, you get to watch this this prospect is supposed to be a big part of the future and everything like that. But at the same time, it's they're, they're playing these games that just kind of feel that that don't have lost the feel after kind of, there was such a, a vibe basically four weeks ago of, you know what? Hey, maybe, maybe this, maybe this is the playoff year. And then you lose back to back games to Ottawa. Steve Eiserman gets really good value on selling to the deadline. And you're like, all right, this, what was it all about? <laughs> Well, I, I, I know for, you know, the paying fans that are going to these games in particular, this won't really move the needle much for you, but I much prefer that to the alternative, right? At the very least, oh, now, I like, yeah, yeah, yeah. they have a ton of yeah. flexibility. They have a lot of draft capital. They have a lot of cap space to work with this summer, and they have now a 6% chance all of a sudden at getting Connor Bernard, a 12% chance or whatever, at getting a top two pick. There's a lot to work with there beyond oh, pushing yeah. all your chips in or, or kind of selling this false hope, finishing just outside the playoffs and then not having really anything to show for the season at the very least. Now I, I actually do prefer what what's going on with the Red Wings, whether how much of it intentional or not. Um, you yeah. know, I think they would have preferred to be competing, but once they kind of saw the signs on the wall, they were smart to react quickly before the deadline and trade the players. They could get a bunch of capital back and at least decisively push in this direction. So I really don't mind it. I know that these games can really, Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. Slog, but no, it's yeah, it's it's it, it was the right move. It was the right move, and things are it's it's the right step for the franchise moving forward and everything like that. It's just it's one of those spaces where you're you're starting like oh, I'll go over to the game tonight, and they're playing Pittsburgh, and you're like, you, Pittsburgh is in this this fight with Florida for that last spot. It looks like I don't know right now. It looks like they're going to get it over Florida, but we'll see, right? Like you just. I'm just looking forward to playoff hockey right now. That's yeah. kind of it's <laughs> kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I uh, so I took, I took two weeks off while I was in New Zealand, so I was I really did a good job. I'm proud of myself for just like staying away from my phone and really kind of unwinding and not following hockey. So now since I've been back the past couple of days, I've basically like been using one of those machines to just keep my eyelids open while I like just jam <laughs> in as much hockey as I could from those two weeks that I missed into my system to catch up on everything. So. I'm uh, I'm all over the place, but we're going to have some fun. I've got a grab bag of topics for us today. Uh, none of them are really fully fleshed out. It's a lot of like kind of half-baked ideas that could be interesting topics. So we're just going to bounce around and see um, how far we get with them. Let's do you want to start talking about either the AHL as a developmental league or goalie usage? Because I know we kind of have both of those teed up on our uh, on yeah. 
Uh, I've got the let's let's do the AHL one just because that's okay, fresh in my mind because I was before uh, before we hopped on I was still working on on that story so let's uh, that's that's fresh on the mind right now let's so let's go there so yeah um, yeah quick teaser everyone uh, check out uh, Shap Shots uh, story tomorrow morning on something that popped for me and mentioned Simon Evanson earlier last week um, when Evanson gets recalled they're talking about his play and getting acclimated and everything like that. And um, Derek Lalonde mentioned something just about how the systems are slightly different between Detroit and Grand Rapids. And like any great ear, earworm, wormhole, whatever, I have now gone much deeper down that wormhole than I ever should have of past couple days of talking to people from various NHL organizations, watching more film of neutral zone four checks than I ever should from the AHL just to see of what the heck is the norm for should your NHL team and AHL team be running the same system. Like for example, once again, Pittsburgh's in the building tonight. I asked Mike Sullivan about it today. I talked to Mark Friedman as someone who has been up and up and down, right? Someone who, someone who has a little bit of that insight of, who's just like well yeah in pittsburgh let's say it's a mandate what the wilkes-barre scranton penguins do is exactly what the pittsburgh penguins do it's the only obviously there are some differences for personnel and logistics wilkes-barre scranton penguins don't have Sidney crosby and evgeny Malkin, so there is some change for that but to the flip side where you have some teams and it was fascinating to hear things like this where tampa affiliate with the the syracuse crunch in the ahl completely different systems there's times Lalonde told me about there's times where guys would come up from Syracuse who they would have no idea where to be on puck retrievals in the Tampa system because they've done something so different in Syracuse so fascinating wormhole that uh I'm sure you and I can go deeper into right now and will even help me with this writing process well the reason why that's really interesting to me and those two teams as specific examples is because of recent history right with the Penguins especially when Mike Sullivan took over they had this track record or or um kind of uh built up this identity around the league of being an organization that could essentially plug and play right like they if they had yeah. an injury or if they had an opening in the lineup regardless of where it was whether it was a a grinder who would just play eight four checking minutes or whether it was someone who would jump up to the top line and play next to city crosby in a scoring role they could call someone up and they could be a relatively unknown name to us uh on a national level to be a kind of 25 year old, whatever, um, you know, not even necessarily a former prospect, just a player who's kind of been working their way up the system. And all of a sudden they step in, they make a name for themselves, they score a bunch of goals and they wind up becoming Brian Rust. Right. And yeah. they, they had great success doing that. The lightning have also similarly uh, developed a rep around the league of being a team that kind of uncovers these gems or these especially undersized forwards that wind up having very successful NHL careers in their mid to late 20s. But I guess in that, in that case, they've kind of been more like from one season to the next as opposed to on the fly in-season yeah. yeah. additions to their lineup that immediately stepped in seamlessly. And so maybe that's where that discrepancy between the way those two organizations operate um, reflects itself. But it is interesting because they both had success in very different ways running entirely different approaches. Yeah, and it's let's for example, and it's there's other the other key question, like I talked to one NHL video coach about this, and he brought up the point where it comes down to the question of is the NA is the AHL a development league or is it a league about winning? Because there are certain schematics that work at the AHL level that wouldn't work at the NHL level. Mm -hmm. Um, like for example, um the Dallas Stars, who near and dear to my heart, and we both we love both love talking about the Dallas Stars. Them in Texas very similar in certain ways, but if you look at how they forecheck and how Texas is a very wide team, they tech they're very wide um, in the forecheck, and it's too wide. It's too wide of a forecheck and too wide of a neutral zone approach to work against NHL talent because NHL talent will just see that down the middle and cut right through the middle and take that space. Where in the AHL you don't have the elite defensemen that in NHL that that they, you don't have the elite puck carries you don't have especially on the blue line so an AHL team can do that it's a system that works at the AHL it's a system that um, it's a system where someone made a comparison says says you watch some of the college hockey from this past weekend there's some teams who they use they may use a a team that plays in the uh, CCHA or the WCHA. CCHA is a better example. Use the CCHA may be able to get away with using 
a wider forecheck against a CCH opponent, but if you play the Michigans of the world or you play against some of those others where they have that top end, that top end talent carrying the puck, they're just going to take that space and it's going to burn you. So it's, 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 it gives this, this larger theme of is the NH is the AHL's team's job. Is it to win games? Is it to develop talent? And we've seen this trend, right? Where it's become more and more of it's going closer and closer to the minor league baseball model where the games don't matter. Um, the the fact they expanded the AHL playoffs is just a full testament to that. The fact 24 teams get into the AHL playoffs now takes away. You don't have to be a good AHL team. You just have to avoid being a bad AHL team. So it's now at a spot where for teams to get their prospects playing, quote unquote, meaningful games, 24 teams are in. So it's no longer a spot where you have to win games to get more of those meaningful games. You just have to be good enough to avoid the bottom two. It's I don't know the exact answer. It's 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 a, it's a it's a it's there's one way to look at it from a a team perspective, and it's why NHL teams keep buying up their AHL teams. It's definitely a a write off for development, and then there's still a couple holdouts, and it's that's why the Syracuse Tampa one is a great example. Syracuse is still an independent business that is trying to win hockey games, so for them to be told what well, you're a write off for development, that's not going to work for. Uh, I believe it's Howard Dolgan is his last name for Howard Dolgan who owns the crunch to, to be like, no, we still have to win games. I'm still trying to run a business here where on the flip side, the Texas stars aren't necessarily a business. Obviously Tom Gillardi would love the team to make some money. At the end of the day, it's about, I want the Dallas it's, it's about having a cost for the Dallas stars to get better players. Yeah. I think if you'd ask anyone, I I think they'd say, ideally you'd find some balance between the two where if you're teaching young players good quote-unquote winning habits that'll translate to relatively short-term results right they're going to win more games and it'll also help in their future development we but you and i both know that's not necessarily how it works though right and that's specifically for a coaching staff if you're a coach who is looking to garner recognition for future jobs you're looking to work your way up right you don't want to necessarily just be stuck in the ahl for the rest of your career it seems good in theory to say, oh, well, if you have a track record of developing young prospects into full-time NHLers, that's going to be a selling point for you. But in reality, we know how the business works, right? Most likely it'll be, all right, did you have a winning program? Did you compete did you, for a Calder Cup? Yeah. Of course, yeah. that's what's going to, that's what yeah. NHL teams yeah. are going to look for. And that's going to buy you future interviews and future, uh, you know, your name popping up in, in coaching search headlines and stuff like that. And so, it's, it is unfortunate because I would like to think that ideally the AHL would be the best developmental league where you would send your young players regardless of their age and they'd get meaningful opportunities to play 20 plus minutes and work on their craft and then be ready to go once an, a position opens up for them on the NHL roster. But unfortunately, that's not really how it works right now in the NHL. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a league where you have the coaches who get the next jobs are... The Jared Bednar won. He didn't get Jared Bednar didn't get the Avalanche job because oh you promoted this many players to the Blue Jackets. It's because he helped the Lake Erie Monsters or Cleveland Monsters, whatever the team is named now, win a Calder Cup. That is that is why he got the job. And it's uh it's probably it's the AHL is and we got to give credit because the AHL is one of the toughest leagues in the world to coach in because it's the one. The ECHL, even the ECHL, the ECHL is not a development league. Let's like, and I don't want to, it's just, let's be, let's call it what it is. The ECHL is a league where if there's development, it's a spot where you house young goalies who you're mm-hmm. trying to get some more minutes. Other than that, the ECH, an ECHL coach's job is to win and that's it. And the AHL coach's job differs greatly by organization and also, and, and also comes from a spot of, I, at the end of the day, your roster is going to get ransacked one way, or you might lose this or whatever for either positive or negative reason at top. It's, um, I don't, it's, there's no real, I don't think there's a coaching job. That's a really good equivalent of it. Cause even like those junior teams where even if you're like in theory going to lose, you lose one player or whatever, you're never going to be in a spot where some team above you is going to make a trade. And all of a sudden you have an entire top line sent somewhere else or something like that. Yeah. I'd say the, uh, there's not necessarily one right way or do, right way to do it or wrong way to do it because as you mentioned the the penguins and the lightning have had yep. different approaches and have each you know mined it for for great success for their NHL club 
the one must, from my opinion, I'm, I'm wondering if you feel the same way is like geographically, like you need to, uh, like you need to keep them close, right? You need to keep them under a watchful eye and also have the players readily available for you. I think, I think that's a must for me. And it's always bizarre when you see, and th- and this is like, it's been shrinking, yeah. right? I think this used to be yeah. much more of the case five, 10 years ago, but like where you'd have like the Canucks, for example. And, and then it's like, oh, their AHL team is in Utica. And it's like, all right, that makes no sense. It's like, if you need that player, it's going to take them a significant period of time, first off, to come and be available. But also, it's just such a far gap between the two places that it's really tough on a day-to-day basis to be keeping up with it. Yeah. And, and that's why I know that, you know, sometimes fans get frustrated when a young player or a prospect is up with the NHL team, but they aren't getting on the ice or they're they're being healthy scratched. And I know there's teams uh, that prefer that because they feel like, all right, on the off days or on practice days or game day skates, they can keep that player close. They can have them working with their NHL staff. They can, you know, prepare them for the rigors of being a full-time NHL player. And that is an entirely different approach as well to what you see in the AHL and kind of what that entails in terms of all the logistics as well. Yeah. The thing we're seeing right now with the AHL and as that geography has gone a lot closer Basically, the only holdouts of teams being close are owners who aren't willing to spend to make that happen. Yeah. And Tom Dundon, for example, is notoriously has even said it himself. I'm not going to pay money for I'll play. I'll pay money for players, but isn't going to pay for. I mean, there's the whole John Forslund saga a couple of years ago where he had a longtime broadcaster leave because of pay like. The, the fact that the Hurricanes AHL affiliate is Chicago and not the team in their home state comes down to the fact that he was looking for the best, the cheapest possible AHL affiliate deal. The St. Louis Blues have no interest in owning their own AHL team at this point. So there's in Springfield, Massachusetts. There's lots of Springfields. Um, so it's it's we're getting to the spot where the map has gotten has made so much geographical sense. And when it doesn't, you can look at it and it goes back to the point of, okay, oh, that's, that goes back to ownership deciding what is worth my investment or what is my, or, or, or what, or how can I make it make sense? Because right now at this point, as for Tampa, they've won two Stanley cups. So they've been to the finals three years in a row at this point, the Syracuse model for them still works because they are they are still at the spot where they look at Syracuse as we don't need to move an AHL team closer to here because what we have is working right now. I will be fascinated. Like I just long term, like if I'm doing magic crystal ball, I'm curious to see what happens with Tampa and their AHL affiliate because that's the one that still doesn't make sense. Syracuse to Tampa doesn't make sense. Syracuse is not easy to get to. Like it's well, the so. Charlotte Checkers, they're they're Carolina's AHL affiliate, right? Oh, oh, wait, no, it's no, oh, oh, they're Florida's. Oh, that they're Florida. Yeah. That's strange. Um, okay. Is there anything else here on uh on the AHL or do you want to move on to our next topic? No, let's let's move to the next topic. Okay. Here's a good one. So Jonathan, we uh we also opened up the mailbag. Um yeah. so I asked the listeners for for their thoughts. And Jonathan here asks, How effective is it for a team to run an 11-7 lineup, meaning 11 forwards and seven defensemen dressed? In my mind, it throws off the defensive rotation and it mismatches top six forwards with bottom six line mates. So I'm curious for your take on this because uh it's a really interesting thing that I wouldn't say it's necessarily growing in terms of popularity. Like it's, it's kind of been the same, but, but we see it kind of pop up with, with different teams time and again. And I'm kind of curious for your take on it. I hate 11, seven. I don't like it at all. Like I, I personally, I would rather, I would rather play with five defensemen than seven, honestly. Like, I just think, I think having, having seven, you get to a spot. The only way someone should be using 11, seven, I really think in my view, and I'm not an NHL coach, but is if you have a defenseman who you're like, he's coming back, we need to figure out if he's like, we're managing some minutes and we don't know if he can do the, it's, it's, it's beyond game time decision. It's in game decision. It's, you know what, after the first period, it's, we got to go to the other guy. Like to me, that's the only justifiable use for 11 seven especially in a spot where, and thankfully we're in a spot where in an age where you don't have to, the position you play doesn't mean you have to be on or off a power play like we're not in an age mm-hmm. where it's oh you have to have a defenseman on the power play you can just use four forwards on the power play but the team should use five forwards on the power play whenever possible in my in my view but that's a whole nother story uh 11 i i don't like 11 seven for the perspective of 
I think of that someone you're basically sacrificing a roster spot because that seventh defenseman, basically it's not going to be one of your top four guys. And so basically you got a third pair that is already getting third amount of minutes anyway, and you're creating a weird lack of cohesion. I I personally would rather, if you said, could you have seven defensemen or five defensemen? I'd rather have five defensemen ride my top four and let the fifth guy rotate in a little bit and still play my top and play my top four that way. I just, I, I think I, I am not a fan of 11-7 at all, unless unless you have a, a clear, we're using it because we're testing a guy in or we're trying to, or we're trying to, guys coming off injury and we couldn't make enough of a decision based off warmups. I am, I'm not going to, yeah. This is the John Cooper <laughs> special, right? He brought this, yeah. brought this, I don't know if he's brought it to fame, but he's most recently been the coach that has leaned on this the most, especially in the postseason. Um this is going to make for good podcasting then because I completely disagree with you. I, I much prefer it. I, I, I it, it obviously time and place situationally dependent and the, the, the personnel you have um, could sway my opinion on it. But for the most part, I like the idea of, um, you know, the seventh defenseman doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to get him out there. It's kind of a bit of insurance in case there's injury. I feel like, especially from like blocking a shot or something, you're much more likely to have a defenseman, go down or if they get in a fight or whatever they're, they're they're sent off for whatever reason it all of a sudden doesn't completely throw your your pairs in a flux you can just plug and play but i like the idea for most purposes uh from a practical perspective getting your best forward out there as much as possible because uh, my belief is that forwards in the nhl are typically underused right most coaches 100%. like to roll their four lines right it's that cliche get them out as much as possible keep the rhythm going and so you wind up in these situations where the gap between this was the Rick bonus special uh, during his time in, in Dallas, where <laughs> the gap between the first lines, five on five usage and the fourth lines, five on five usage was like a minute per game or something like that. It's like, Oh, that seems kind of strange. You'd think that you'd want to get your best players out as much as possible. And so in this case, at the very least, and especially I think it's becoming more relevant because fourth lines are now becoming lines with players that can actually still play and score and contribute offensively, right? You're not sending out your number one forward with two kind of face punchers, like like two grinders. You're actually generally, they're pretty good players in their own right. All of a sudden it's giving you an opportunity to get a Nikita Kucherov or when the Lightning do it, for example, away from the other team's you know, top defensive assignment. And all of a sudden you can sneak them on the ice, maybe create an extra chance. If they have a good offensive zone shift, all of a sudden you can send brain point out there to join them. Right. And kind of sustain uh, offensive momentum that way and keep control of the puck. And so for that purpose, I like it. I understand the, the, the problems with it, but I do think it, the, the risk is so small and the gain is actually, you know, there, especially, especially in the playoffs where one little shift here or there can make that big of a difference that I like getting your top players out on the ice as much as possible. You've, you've hit on, on another key problem. We need an excuse to do that. The issue that, that you've hit the other key problem when it comes to hockey thinking mm. is we need an excuse to get a Nikita Kucherov out on the fourth line when you go, why do you need the excuse for that? It's the job is to win hockey games. What's what's stopping you from breaking up that fourth? If you're going 12 six, what's stopping you from saying, hey, we have an offensive zone faceoff or and for some reason, I'm putting out these two fourth line players. Why don't I put Nikita Kucherov with them over someone else? It's at the end of the day, your job is to like, you've hit on the problem there where the issue is we have to create the excuse to be able to do this. I want 12 six, but I still want my, I still want a large gap between line one and four. I want, I want my best players playing more often. Well, no, I agree with you. It's a, it's certainly a deeper rooted <laughs> systemic issue, but I'm saying based on the landscape we have and how coaches yes. generally operate, at least this sort of forces the issue a little bit and, and nudges them in the right direction, in my opinion, in terms of allocating ice time for, for your various lines. I mean, Otto here asked a, a question which kind of ties into this then, and you're going to like this. Otto says, why do many coaches seem to go to the quote unquote line blender as option number one when their team is doing poorly in or across games? It feels counterintuitive. Wouldn't a coach want their players in comfortable situations with familiar line mates to execute whatever strategic changes they're making. Another great question, right? Like it, it's, it's, yeah. And that's, and yeah, it's like, Oh, I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to just try different combinations. And certainly sometimes, you know, uh, there is a, a motivation element, right? Like the, that you're dealing with, with human beings. It's not necessarily just like names on a screen. And so 
that can lead to a spark in terms of, all right, now you understand the the way we've been playing isn't acceptable. We need to make a change. All of a sudden, you acknowledge that that's happening when you're playing with different players, and that can lead to better results. But it also speaks to, I think, a lack of sort of creativity from a, a strategic perspective we see in the NHL, where that does seem to be the most common resort for coaches, where if things aren't working, especially in a playoff series, they'll get credit for, oh, they're just trying different combinations, and that seems to be like the least creative possible approach to to fixing a problem. I think it's kind of a bit of the mentality of if I don't know what I'm doing, the other guy can't know what I'm doing trying to to counteract it. I think that's I think that comes up too, where it's like, oh well, we might as well throw anything. I mean, this is an entire sport where and it's great, we sell it this way, but it's an entire sport where we sell that all 16 teams going to the playoffs have a chance to win. It's the the randomness of this sport is part of what people love about it and the playoffs of it and everything like that compared to some other sports. So of course, it makes sense that you have you have the people in charge of running these teams is going to look at look at are going to look at randomness as as a positive and an opportunity to 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 fix something. Well, I have to make it look like I'm doing something, and I think I think sometimes it becomes a message sending thing because I think I, I also I think sometimes the people who watch hockey and I think the people who watch and cover hockey just the sport is so fast. It's within a game. We miss the small too many times. We miss the small changes coaches might make before the line blender. And I think that's the other thing that happens too often where it's like, they may have changed the four check. They may have changed the defensive assignment. They may have done all of that in the first period. And then, okay, well that didn't work. So I go to the line blender in the second period, but because of how the sport is covered and with the chaos and everything, so much of the coverage of it is built off of, I'm just watching something in front of me. And it's not like football where I'm breaking it down play by play or, mm-hmm. or even basketball where, and I think, I think so many times and when, and so the question always comes to the coach from a media perspective, Oh, you change the lines to change something up and coaches think and coaches think they're, they have to hide information from everyone. So instead of giving the answer of like, well, I did like the true answer maybe is like, well, we changed the four check. Um, uh, we changed the four check. We changed our pressure point on the penalty kill here and that wasn't working. So we just changed the lines. Instead of giving that answer, it's like, Oh, well, we needed a spark. Like, I think it's just kind of all cyclical and how it all goes where we're missing some it's it's sometimes it is the first change, but I think we're also missing the times it's not because no one within a game broadcast and within the coverage of the sport, we don't stop to talk about it. So people don't look for it all the time. Right. But okay. So let's, let's play this scenario out then. Yes. Even further. So are you saying then that from a coaching perspective, it's just not wanting to indulge the media necessarily and actually being transparent because there's no real gain from it or you know you're just you're just being a curmudgeon and you just don't want to be doing it so you're doing the least amount possible to fulfill your media obligations and then you're just moving on because i think a common sort of perception uh for amongst fans is as analysts we have a certain amount of information available especially in terms of analytics right with publicly available metrics but teams teams have such a wealth of information they have a staff of analysts they have people grinding all this tape they have they're especially in a playoff series you're breaking down every single shift you you know your opponent as well as your own team so you're not necessarily hiding it from your opposition because if you have made some of those structural changes they will have clued into it already you're not hiding it from them you just don't really see the gains of communicating that to to your fan base i think part of it i'd flip it on the other side i think post-game questions suck well, in general, and I well, say this. I, I I say this to someone who has asked some sucky post game questions. You go through a game ends, and your people and part of the job is to fill out a story and fill out the space. And so you ask, "Oh, what'd you see on that goal?" and and and, and that, or what do you think of this guy's game? Just to kind of give generic as possible to let the coach answer that way. Where you go to after an NFL game, someone will be like, "Oh, you have third and twenty. You you ran." this play why'd you do this like i i think part of it is comes from the spot where coaches aren't asked that question and i think there's and then there's there's people who do have those types of questions and because hockey is such media group think many times i think there's so many times where that question i don't want to ask Derek alon too much about this question in person not in person in, in the public specter because it's in a scrum. I want to take the time to work on this story myself separately. I don't want to ask Derek Lalonde about, Hey, you guys run the one, one, three, four check. Why does it work differently with this guy? All of a sudden I do that. That story is in the Detroit news, the Detroit free press and M live tomorrow. If I ask it in the thing, 
Now right. me, now me not asking him allows me to ask four different players about it at practice by myself. And then I can go do thing, do, do my own thing. I think that's part of the issue. It's kind of, it's, it's a chicken or egg thing here where I don't, I think coaches, I actually, in the past, I probably was someone who was put on my big J journalism hat and was like blaming coaches for trying to hide things from us. But I think in general, you want better answers. You got to ask better questions. And I think in general, a lot of hockey questions, most 90% of questions after, after hockey games are completely pointless. Just, it's just, it's the reality. I know that's, I know I, I, I'm worried that someone's going to swoop in here and take my PHWA card for saying that, but it's, it's true. Well, like, no, you and I had a full, full conversation about this earlier in the season about how like the, the conventional post-game piece is just completely irrelevant. Right. Like I, yeah, I just yeah, told you, yeah, I, yeah. I missed two yeah. weeks worth of hockey when yeah. I was in New Zealand. Yeah. My first way to catch up when I came home wasn't, all right, I'm going to pull up NHL.com and I'm going to read uh, the recap from the March 13th game between the Buffalo Sabres and and the New York Islanders to, to find out what happened. Like who's consuming hockey that way? Like, of course, of course not. So like if you can actually provide some nugget of information, even if it's a small little parcel yeah. and then kind of either, it doesn't necessarily even have to provide answers, right? Ask further follow-up questions from it. I think that is such more, so much more useful for, uh, not only myself, but I, I imagine most fans out there than sort of the traditional gamer that I think people are more and more moving away from. Yeah, and well, they should. So. Okay, uh, Sean, let's take our break here before we uh, before we run out of time to do so. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to keep chatting about some of the other topics we have in our to-do list here. You are listening to the Hockeypedia cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. here on the hockey pdo cast with sean shapiro sean uh let's talk about goalies then because you had a really interesting piece where you got to talk to ben bishop about it and kind of talk a little bit about goalie usage and i think that's an interesting conversation for us to unpack here as well so i'll uh, i'll give you the floor yeah it's uh piece was last week over uh, once again over at the Substack uh shap shots you should check it out um we're kind of looking at uh we talk so often about the goalie back to back, right? And it's evolved how it's evolved, and and this year the the number of goal times goalies playing both games of a back to back is has diminished, but that's kind of reflective of the entire NHL goalie usage, right? Like the days of Marty Brodeur playing seventy eight games is now if someone plays sixty games, you're like, wow, that's a lot. Like the the number and and so it kind of came down to it was a back to back situation. Detroit was playing Florida. Both teams are playing the first game of a back-to-back. Um, going into the game, Detroit was, hey, we're playing Billy Huso game one. We're going to play Magnus Helberg game two. That was the plan off the bat. Paul Maurice in Florida was more, I'll see where it goes. It just, to me, it was just a, and it prompted a conversation, just in a conversation, a discussion of, okay, how these, these goalie back-to-backs, when it comes to a guy playing both, I think it's become such a, like, it's become such a crutch where like, Oh, you can't play it. You can't play a goalie both games back to back. Like you, you, you can't do that. That's not something you can do. And I, I think that's faulty. Honestly, I think personally it was, uh, and I think the research kind of backs it up in that story. There's some goalies who honestly probably should not play back to back. So it was interesting. Like Sergei Bobrovsky, if you look at his numbers, when he plays both game one and two, like his save percentage dips almost 20 points in game two, but Connor Hellebuck plays more back-to-backs than anyone in the league, and his save percentage actually goes up in Game 2, which maybe is a point of conversation for him and his goalie coach about what's happening in Game 1. I, it's it's To me, it's kind of one of those spaces where we have this old-timey hockey thinking that has slightly evolved, only slightly evolved, where um, we're starting to see some new thinking with it, but it's still the, you can't play the same goalie in both games of a back-to-back, and you go starter Game 1, backup game two and that's just kind of the way it's been and, and we're starting to see some teams break away from it but i don't know it's 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 just a topic that to me i just nerd out about and i've rambled and i'll let you get me back on track here <laughs> yeah well i think there's two ways that might not necessarily be related to look at this right one mm-hmm. is uh 
performance in terms of whether yeah. that degrades with fatigue. And then the other is risk of injury. And I think the the second is far more interesting to me and also a bit yeah. more of a sort of difficult topic to to handle. Um, I did a show with Joe Smith a while back, who's covering the wild now for the athletic. And, and he wrote up a piece about this and I'm very, I'd, I'd love to read more about it in terms of how the wild are using these sort of bracelets on their players to monitor, uh, you know, various biometrics and, and sort of their, their fatigue levels. And they've been basically choosing when to hold team practices as a result of it, depending on how those levels are reading to them. And so I find that incredibly fascinating. And, and that's obviously, you know, as much as you'd like to maximize your chances of winning an individual game, yeah. especially late in the season, maintaining player health and longevity and keeping them on the ice and feeling good and feeling healthy and being able to contribute for the long term is far more important for for every organization. And so I think that's a, a very interesting component of this that that could kind of, you know, lead to a whole separate conversation basically. Yeah. And it's, it's, and I, I think from the goaltending perspective, and it, I think I liked, I thought Paul Maurice actually had a pretty good take on it and it kind of lined up well with, I talked to Ben Bishop about it, who um, technically Buffalo Sabre Ben Bishop until his contract is up in at the end they, of, they should call July. that guy up. They, they've had some goalie issues this season. They, they could. I mean, he told me when he got, uh, when I talked to him, it was right after the day they signed uh, Devin Levi. And he said, he's like, I'm pretty sure Devin's above me on the depth chart, but I haven't got a call from, uh, <laughs> I, I ha- but I haven't gotten a call yet to, to, to get over there. Uh, Craig and I, Craig, Craig is us. They got the, they got the veteran above me and Craig Anderson. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it was when you look at the goalie back to back, it's, it's it's not necessarily, and as I've kind of looked at this, it's not necessarily game one and game two of it. It's can you properly manage if you can you properly manage the days around it? Can you properly manage to me the three and four, the three and four is a bigger deal than 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 the back to back because you you have one game, you have one game and the way the way Bishop put it, you have you have game one, your momentum and your rhythm is gonna continue into game two. It's gonna be fine. It's if you, it's how do you handle the first practice day off? How do you handle the recovery of that? And I talked to a goalie coach after that story ran, actually, um, who brought up the point. He said, one of the things, one of the reasons that he thinks that we have more and more, as we'll get to, he says, he thinks we'll get to the point. His theory was that someday we'll get to more goalies playing both games of a back-to-back because coaches will start to trust young goalies. His his theory was that right now, one of the reasons that coaches are so afraid, even more so to do it, is that you can't play a young guy both games back to back because he doesn't know how to make sure he's healthy on day three. Like that's and, and I and it was something where it's like this goalie coach brought up if hey, as we continue to listen to the goalie coach and as the goalie coaches continue to get more of the year of the NHL coach, hopefully we get to the spot where we're making the decisions that we're putting the best chance to win on the ice most frequently as possible. Like if a team's playing a back-to-back game and they have a play Friday, they say they play Friday, Saturday. If they don't play when, if they don't and say they play, say they don't play Thursday, Wednesday, and they play, they play Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Tuesday, right? Like your starter can play all four games. Like that's not like, that shouldn't be like, that's something that now, if you have a good one, a one B that push each other, great, do it. But if you have a starter, if you're a team, like for example, once again, I, and I apologies, I always go back to Dallas just because it's a team I know well, but they fit well for this scenario. When you have Jake Ottinger and Matt Murray, like why are you ever playing the, the other Matt Murray? Sorry. Yes, why are you yeah. ever playing? Why, why are you ever playing Matt Murray when you have a healthy, a healthy Jake Ottinger? So, but I'm very interested in Ben Bishop's perspective on this at the same time though which player is going to say that they don't want to play every single night, right? Like I'd be surprised to hear Ben Bishop say that he doesn't want to play all 82 games. And so for me, you look at it right now, uh, Connor Hellebuck is leading the league, 63 games. UC Soros is at 63. Andre Vasilevsky, 61. Georgiev and Andre, 61. And that's it. They're the only guys above 60. And so to your point of we're now surprised whenever it used to be 70 plus and now it's 60 plus and it's like, whoa, that's a... That's a big, that's, I can't believe this guy's going to start 63 games. Um, I, I I think there is enough data to show that goalies should not be starting 
more than 60 games. I do wonder though, the, That's fine. Uh, yeah. the, the sequencing of the games is interesting to me. I, I, without having looked at this, I wonder if there's a scenario where it might actually make sense to play that goalie in back-to-back games. The fatigue of those playing those two games in, in 24 hours isn't an issue, but then you give them like a full week off or something and whether that recovery provides their body a better opportunity to, to sort of recover. And then all of a sudden they'll be better for, the following week i wonder if that's a better way to approach it as opposed to sequencing games the way we have so far i I do agree with you on the usage like i I think we're at a spot where when it comes to overall wear and tear on the body and this i think the sequence sequencing is probably a great way to put it i think that you're going to i my working hockey observer theory is that you can get the best version of a goalie for about 70 games and the key question and, and and the key question is how do you build that you have enough of those games in the postseason? So like if you if, how how do you avoid right. that's where sometimes we see because you're, you're you're hopefully yeah. going to be playing twenty playoff games exactly. So you're 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 hopeful and this is why like that fifty game mark is actually it makes a lot of sense because in theory you're saving your goalie's best health for twenty games. But I think I think the sequencing is a really good way to look at this and bring this up because. Um, one of the one of the development models for goaltending in, in in North American hockey is college hockey, right? And that's that's that is what that model is. Play back to back, off for five or not off for five days, but you have you play Friday Saturday, then you're off till the next Friday. Like that is a model where maybe we need to be looking more at that data point and how college hockey goalies are holding up as more of the space of how can you fit that into an NHL schedule? How can you approach it that way it's it's it would be you keep every time we you and i talk i end up getting more ideas of things well you know wormholes on like you know what you had a you had a you had a you had a note in one of your recent pieces i think it was like one of your mailbags or something where you you were kind of pointing out or or talking about the idea of teams having uh changing the way teams carry a third goalie for example that's available to them kind of like a bullpen catcher yeah Yeah. I, i i so using the baseball example i think there's been a lot of studies that have shown that a, a pitcher, especially like a, a relief pitcher, having to warm up and and simulate game setting pitches to get ready to to step on the mound, also has a, a cumulative effect of wear and tear on their body, not just Correct. the actual innings they pitch in a game setting. And so, for me, for a goalie, I think that applies as well. Where think of all the all the the mental toll that goalies go through to to get themselves ready to participate in a game, right? And so for me, I'd be really fascinated to 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 see a study on that in terms of like we know sometimes that if a team decides their starter is not playing tonight, Eric Comrie can give up 10 goals and he's gonna stay in there because they the the backup isn't prepared to come in or whatever, right? And so and that that that's an entirely different conversation, you know what I mean, in terms of like uh goalie preparation for games and whether that has some sort of a mental toll as well that isn't necessarily reflected in in physical workload, but matters as well. And so not having to worry about your starter on an off night, having to come in because the backup's getting lit up might provide them a better runway to recover for their next start as opposed to sitting on the bench and worrying about whether they're going to have to step in and, and, and kind of back them up in relief. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously in the playoffs, you would want your number two playing all the time. But if I, it was last week when, uh, before the blues sent Joel Hofer back to the AHL to, to play down the stretch, they basically, as they were going from Hofer to Bennington, they basically had whoever was going to be the next star. It was uh, Thomas Grice was basically serving in that de facto role where he was the taking the extra shots in practice. He was the guy who was going through the the bag. He was taking the, the, the warm up and being in that backup role. Like it's, the issue becomes like, and we've seen teams, we've seen teams carry, it only ever happens in like weird circumstances. Like we had the St. Louis one where Bennington got in, got the suspension. So they carried three goalies for a bit and recalled Hofer on emergency circumstances and everything like that. Or um, I'm trying to remember who, but there was, I want to say there's some team a couple years back that carried three goalies for longer than they should have because of, they had oh, are you, a are waiver situation. Are you kidding me, Sean? This is this is one of the first PDO cast <laughs> recurring topics uh, in in I think our first year. It was a, it was a topic near and dear to my heart. It's New York Islanders with JF Berube, yes. yes, who 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 kept him and 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 the running joke was that 
I was unclear whether he actually existed because I could see him on the roster. He was active, but he, yes. he you, wouldn't, you wouldn't see him in any game setting. He wasn't even on the bench. He was just, they were just carrying him yeah. around. And, and so, uh, you know, that became a whole running bit for me. And, and yeah, still to this day, and he's been uh, very active in terms of switching teams and getting called up yes. and sent down every single time cat friendly tweets out that he's been assigned or whatever. I get people mentioning me in that tweet being like, Oh, here's JF Barube. He's back at it. So, uh, I remember that topic far too well. Yeah, I I think teams also need. Um, I think right now, and, and I don't know, maybe if this is expanding the NHL roster spot, NHL roster size by one or whatever, maybe maybe that's the way to do it. But I think there should be a space where teams are allowed to do this. Like it was, it was, it's funny, and like I don't. I was watching a. Uh, I was watching Detroit practice last week after Vili Husso had uh Vili Husso got got injured and so uh Alex Delfich gets called up and he's not there yet and so they have the the e-bug basically is going through the morning skate with the Red Wings and it's the space where obviously a, the guy is a very kind guy and they found the best possible e-bug possible but are you really is that really the best game prep for your NHL players to shoot against a beer leaguer in the morning. Like, yeah. wouldn't it make sense to have a third NHL goalie there, another NHL goalie there? And this was obviously happened because one was on the way, but if you had three on the roster, if you had a guy who was this bullpen catcher equivalent, who was an NHL goalie and credit to Mike, Mike McKenna was one of the first people I've heard really push this idea. And I think one of the reasons Mike pushed it was partially it probably would have extended a playing role for him in his career, but that type of guy who, you know what? You don't want them to, you don't, you don't need them in the AHL stealing starts from the kid you need to build for the future, but they could play in an NHL game. They're viable. They're used to, they, they, they're used to these shots. They're used to NHL practice. Like it's in a sport where we talk so much about finding the next little edge and, and teams get competitive on this. This just feels like something where it just, it seems so obvious to me that Yet we go to, and as much as I love the e-bug story, like the fact of the matter is the e-bug story is no, nowhere else would you have the, uh, I mean, I guess the San Francisco 49ers kind of proved otherwise in the NFC championship game, but, uh, but uh, nowhere else would you have such an important position where you'd be like, all right, well, it's one, two, and then nobody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, so, so you think that in, in this case, teams would definitely use that third spot on like sort of the, the uh, AHL journeyman, which would create further opportunities for yeah, young yeah, the, goalies uh, to not have to be like, playing the ECHL, but getting those reps in the AHL. You think that would be the trickle down effect? Yeah, I think I think it'd be kind of like the four A guy. You'd get some of those. You that four A guy. You'd get some of those North American goalies who go over to Europe when they're like, like for example, one guy. I don't think he's playing anymore, but one guy who comes to mind is like the John Muses of the world, a guy who was a good, decent, okay AHL goalie, good college hockey goalie. Um, but was never really going to be in a team's long-term plans to be the NHL guy, but offer it, but could have had a six, seven year career of being the number three guy, being part of the team, make it say the, say you make it a non salary capped position, make it a, make it a universal, like, Hey, hundred thousand, $200,000 position or whatever, just right. six figure position, give health insurance. And then it becomes part of, it becomes something where it's then you no longer have to worry about like it's it's interesting somebody brought I, somebody brought up the david ayers situation to me after this after i brought this up in the story they said one of the things that we missed about the david ayers situation and i never thought about this is the david ayers situation worked because he was the maple leaf samboni driver and they put it this way it's like what if that had happened in Arizona or Florida or Carolina, where you don't have a guy who practices with an AHL team all the time, a guy who doesn't see those type of shots all the time. For most of these e-bugs, like David Ayer seeing an NHL player shot, it wasn't the first time. The reason the part of the forgotten success of that story is it wasn't, it was he was used to seeing those shots. He was used to seeing pro shots all the time. You go to him, and so it really worked in Toronto because of that. If you go to a market where you don't have that, like the e I don't, and I'm not sure the state of power. I power. I'm not going to power rank e bugs across the league, but that was one of the lessons. That was while it was a great story and hockey was really cool about it. The thing we missed, as someone pointed out to me, is 
that was could have been so much worse where what if it was another market where you didn't have an e-bug e-bug would face initial shots before and he comes in and he lets up six in a row or gets hurt or something like that where it's i just i and i i i love the e-bug story uh I, wasn't I, there a I game? Wasn't there a game at the end of last year with the Stars where the Ducks used the, the Ducks? Yeah, I think it might have been. And actually, I, I forget if if the game mattered I know this. I, for playoff seating for the Stars, but I think it it wasn't like an irrelevant game. It was the third period. It was it was a, uh, and I actually know the guy who's the e-bug, Thomas Hodges, who was yep. uh, and good story. I mean, once again, fun story, but oh, of course, the Ducks. It was one of those games where I think it was. I'm trying to remember who it was. I'm trying to remember who the third. The Ducks used three goals. It was Anthony Stolarz, yeah. It was Stolarz, yeah. Gibson Stolarz, yeah. Gibson Stolarz, and then and then basically in the third period, the game didn't matter for the Ducks, so they're like, "All right, we're getting cranked," and they they basically, who knows how they basically said they're both hurt. So yeah. here he goes, like, and it's and it helped the. Um, I don't remember if it came down to. I don't remember if it actually changed whether Dallas got Calgary or not, but I remember that being a talking point of. Are the stars now going to have a different opponent because the Ducks said we're going to use this ebook? Yeah, good times. Yeah, no, I, I do think uh, I would love it from the perspective of if you're giving your starter the night off, they should not be like on the bench in in equipment. They should be in the press box or just have the night off completely and allow them to to reset. I think that uh, I'm, I'm curious. Next time I have Kevin Woodley on, I'm going to ask him about this because I think it's an interesting topic to. Uh, delve into further sean we got to get out of here um everyone should go subscribe to sean's Substack stack shots uh go subscribe to ep ringside to catch uh the writing that both of us do uh give the podcast the pdo cast five stars wherever you listen and we'll be back tomorrow with more of the hockey pdo cast streaming on the sportsnet radio network